Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ah, hello, yes, there you are, excellent. It's me, Joe Haddo, and welcome to another episode of Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. Later on the podcast, my two guests will each be pitching a book that they love and think that everyone should read, and I'll be tasked with choosing which one to take home. Of course, you may disagree. Today, I'm joined by a screenwriter and Sunday Times best-selling author whose debut novel, The Outcast, won the Costa First Novel Award. She's just published her fifth novel, The Snakes, to great acclaim. Sadie Jones, welcome to Book Off. Hi. Lovely to see you. And my second guest is the author of the acclaimed novels The Unseen World and Heft, which was recently optioned as a feature film. She's just landed from the US to join us today. Welcome, Liz Moore. Thank you so much. So great to have you both here on this wet, rainy, grey, miserable January afternoon. Uh, Liz, if I could start with you to talk about Long Bright River. This is your your latest novel uh, and it's just been published. And it took you a long time, didn't it, to feel ready to even write this book? Yeah, um, the very sort of the first seed that was planted of Long Bright River was back in 2009 um, when I moved to Philadelphia and first encountered a neighborhood called Kensington there, which is very different than the Kensington here (laughs) in that it is a working class neighborhood that's been particularly hard hit by the opioid crisis that's going on in the States. Um, uh, And um, so the book is sort of about that and it's the story of two sisters one of whom is um, suffering from opioid addiction and she goes missing at the start of the novel and the other of whom is a police officer who takes it upon herself to go looking for her sister and it's it's quite it's it's a page turner but it's also dealing with quite a lot of serious issues obviously and I wondered how you found writing that balance between it, it reading you know really fast and getting to know those characters and also dealing with with this crisis as you say you're right that it is a very careful balance um, and it's one that I um, thought about a lot I think there's a human instinct to want to listen to stories rather than be told a moral um, and so it was important to me not to moralize in the telling of this book. But it was also important to me to um, f- offer new understandings of people with addiction and also the family members of people with addiction. 
Um, it's not interesting to me artistically to um, tell the same stories that have been told over and over again and, and to use the same stereotypes about both parties. So um, so I tried to offer new understandings of both sides of the issue um, through the mechanism of what I hope is also sort of a, a propulsive story. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. And you, you spent a lot of time, I believe, talking to people on Kensington Ave. Like many, I was about to say like many families in the States, but probably like many families, period. My mm. own family has a long kind of history of addiction. And so there was kind of a autobiographical pull toward the neighborhood for that reason. Um, and I uh, spent, I first went there as part of a photojournalism project. But I only went a handful of times that year, back in 2009. But I kept, I felt drawn back to the neighborhood over and over again. And I ended up doing um, community work there and teaching free writing workshops at a women's day shelter. Um, And um, many of the clients there were also suffering from addiction to opioids. Um, Some weren't. Um, Some were experiencing, um, you know, poverty uh, or difficulties of other kinds. Um, But through that work, um, I became pretty well acquainted with the neighborhood and um, and started to think seriously about setting a novel there. Mm. And that became Long Bright River. And the title is taken from a poem. Yeah, the title or is... a line of a poem. That's least. right. The title is from a poem called The Lotus Eaters by Tennyson. Which I didn't know, actually, until I read it at the very beginning of, of the book. <laughs> yeah, the phrase comes from that poem, but then I sort of retrofitted it into a few other scenes in the book Um, uh, and it's a phrase that I ended up feeling had resonance in multiple ways with the other some of the other things happening in the book come back to to talk a bit more about your uh, characters if I may Liz I just want to talk to Sadie about about the stakes and also about Tennyson because I don't know about you but I remember studying Tennyson at school and just being sort of like Oh, this guy and this lady and this shallot or whatever it is. I'm so over he's it. He's kind of a terrible poet. I should not say that. But um, he's not a terrible poet. He's one of yours. He is one of ours. Yeah. he's. I've never felt, it's funny, I never felt um, drawn to his work as a reader at all. And so it was with a little bit of hesitation that I ended up using that epigraph and making it the title of my book. One of the things that I found about him that was interesting is that he had a brother who uh, was addicted to opium. So mm. the the coincidence of that sibling dynamic felt almost like it was a message that was being sent to me wow. that it should that should be the title of the book. But I'm not a off the record. It's not off the record. Um, <laughs> I'm not a huge Tennyson fan. Oh, but you're going to get called up for all the for all the Tennyson fandom now. <laughs> so true. <laughs> what about you, Sadie? Tennyson fan. I Take have it or leave to it. confess, I well, I didn't do him at school, and I hadn't really read that much. Mm. So, um, no, I, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, no, no, I'm not a fan. Poetry is one of those things I've, I've had to come back to, you know, and 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 approach at very different angles. As I a, love, a, a, I love poetry, but I, we did very limited the poetry we did at school. I don't know. I was arrogant about the poets I didn't like. Yeah, like Betjeman. I was phenomenally rude about, and I loved Eliot, so I was extremely arrogant about the way they taught me that. 
And I, I was, you know, just, I mean, arrogance is coming up a lot. <laughs> so that ignorance of youth where you know what you love and you know what you're into and you don't want to be told anything. Yeah. So um, you, know, you kind of go through life trying to break down your own prejudices, or I do, I think. Oh, you don't, don't worry about talking about arrogance. You're, to, you're talking to a guy <laughs> who at uni used to stick a copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in his back pocket because he thought it made him look literary and cool. I'd n- not actually read I it at the time. I bet it did, so. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Um, so, Sadie, as I said, The Snakes, this is your fifth novel now. Um, and it's a, it's a morality tale at heart, wouldn't you say? It is, and... Um, it's really interesting listening to Liz, everything that she says about uh, not wanting to moralize and not wanting to preach. And, that, you know, it has similarly themes of addiction. Similarly, it's a very dark book. Um, it's it's for about even though the, the the parallels are many, I think, between these two books, even I mean, the family and mine, the young, there's a young married couple and the woman comes from a lot of money and um a, a very high social situation, but there's her family is extremely dysfunctional and sort of riddled with uh, addiction and and horrible um, behaviors and cruelties within the family. Um, so, like Liz, in order to tell that story, um, I, the only way really to do it was to make it a book that you couldn't not read, mm. um, because I wanted to. You know, in some ways it was a Brexit novel and a Trump novel and I wanted to talk about, you know, the way the world is and to do all that, you know, for me, I just, I had to come at it sideways and I had to um, make it, I mean, it's not a light book by any stretch, but I had to make it a compulsive book and I had to sort of take the engine of a thriller, even though it's not a genre book, um, just because the weight of those things uh, can be dreary mm. and actually pain isn't dreary it's very urgent and there's a sense of sort of when you're in grief or in pain or having a difficult time you are um, in a sense of have a sense of terror and not knowing what's going to happen next so the way to tell the story was to do it that way for me yeah yeah absolutely and I think like I was saying with, with Liz's book as well you know it is a page turner and yet, you know, this is a it, it asks a lot of questions about human nature, which you might associate with a slightly different style or genre. But this it's a it's a human nature thriller. Yeah. You know, and that yeah. is and that's what it makes it really interesting as well, I think, as a reader, because you're getting quite a lot of that darkness, but in a sort of page turny way. Yes. Um, and you were talking, you mentioned uh, B and Dan, who are the married couple. And there's also B's brother, Alex, as well, who plays quite an important role in the story yes he's he's the addict in the story um b they both b and alex come from this very very rich family um and she has turned her back on it um because it was such an unhappy childhood that she had and her brother is still through his addiction and not being able to manage his life uh financially he's still very much attached to both parents in different ways and bankrolled by the father and he's running or attempting to begin to run a very uh, uh, an abandoned hotel, really small hotel in in the middle of France, and he's just battling his demons alone with a sort of fantasy that he will open it to the public and have a going concern. And um, B and Dan come to stay with him on at the beginning of what's going to be a trip around Europe to take some time out from their lives. And she's she's very 
happy to and wants to live off by her own means you see even though her father is this is this property developer and has got all this money but she's she just doesn't want anything to she do has that. made a, a firm decision to have nothing to do with the money or anything about the money and her husband who has come from no money at all and has had to fight for every single thing that he does as he discovers really I mean, she hasn't kept it a secret that there was money it's just that he hadn't seen it before yeah and when he then encounters her family and the way that they live and he glimpses the money that they have then it drives a, a wedge between them well this is i mean this made me think how powerful money is <laughs> in terms of how it can change a person and in the case of your story dan because dan's character just just changes when when this money is involved in it started making me think about you know ev- everyday situations where you hear of friends or you know friends of friends or whoever who've, who've just been totally changed by money for good or for bad or often for bad yeah completely i think we all we all like to think it wouldn't change us we all think that we'd be okay in that marriage uh it's not that he doesn't love her but when money is added in it becomes this enemy to them yeah because it is so seductive and i think we're foolish if we deny how powerful money is mm. if we if we think of kensington avenue again liz and you know talk about think about that and the problems of this opium crisis and everything from a sort of angle of money is it something money can just solve or is it so much deeper than that do you think i think in the states it's more of a question of solving our problems around healthcare and privatized medicine um because the opioid crisis in the states is i think so um so so problematic because um, doctors are incentivized to prescribe opioid medication f- um, by pharmaceutical companies who wish to make um, a huge profit. So yeah, money is insidious in that way. Incentivized in that they the doctors might get a little um, the bit d- of a cut. D- so the <laughs> um, basically, pharmaceutical a specific pharmaceutical company, P- Purdue Pharma, um, owned by the Sackler family in the U.S. Um, underemphasized or denied um, how addictive certain prescription narcotics were beginning in 1996 with OxyContin mm. and marketed them as non-addictive, explicitly non-addictive, and would in effect bribe doctors through the use of, um, for example, like fancy vacations or fancy dinners or free gas money, things like that, to write um, many, many prescriptions for these pills the pills then infiltrated um, the population. Um, the population became hugely addicted and then couldn't get them through prescriptions, so would buy them on the street. That became too expensive and so turned to heroin. And that's the cliff note version of mm. how the crisis began. And now it's it's sort of rampant. And as we know, um, opioid medication sort of irreversibly alters the brain. Mm. Um, and so recovery is certainly possible but quite difficult. Um, and so we're still figuring out how to achieve how to how, what the best pathway is to recovery for people with specifically addiction to opioids. And as I said earlier, you did go and do a lot of research and, and volunteer work, and you spoke to a lot of people and you got their stories, but there are no 
none of your characters are are based on anyone as such. This is just you've written pure fiction, but I suppose it was important in a way for you to to be as accurate as possible, though, wasn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of um, similarities between all of the stories that I've heard, and so my fictional characters share the the specific pathway to addiction that is almost universal to everybody I spoke to. So prescription pills followed uh, by pills bought on the street, followed by a turn to heroin, which is cheaper and achieves the same result. Um, so that's the same pathway, but you're correct that none of the characters is based on any one person or even, an, the, I wouldn't even call them um, a combination. They're, they're invented. Um, Mm. Yeah. And you you wanted to to tell the story from a sort of then and now perspective as well. This runs through the book in different chapters. Yeah, the book um is is the cha- uh, the only chapters that exist are chapters called then and now. Um and the the now is the present um narrative wherein one sister goes missing, missing and the other's searching for her. The then sections um, at first in my mind just served to served as kind of character development when this was a different sort of book. But slowly it became clear that they had to do more than that. And so the then sections now play an important role in solving the present day mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the reason for being for those chapters. We talked a bit about Liz's title. Uh, did you come up with the title for your book, Sadie, before or after you'd written it, or whereabouts in the process did it The did title it come thing from? is um, really strange. With nearly all of my books, the title has come at the very beginning, mm-hmm. and with this one it did too. With um, no story or anything attached to it? I knew that it was, you know, that the family were a nest of snakes. I knew that it was going to be essentially, you know, a tragedy and that it would have these sort of biblical themes mm. um, so but I hadn't worked out the story yet I was still you know in that very early stage of kind of working out who people would be and where we'd be and where we'd be in time so but it came yes and it helps me a lot to um, have that you know what is the book about it's <laughs> it's about snakes they're metaphorical snakes and I know that I'm doing that and that's helpful the only book that didn't happen for was uh, The Uninvited Guests um which was originally called Emerald Torrington's Birthday and the Accident on the Branch Line, <laughs> which <laughs> I really different. love. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But yeah. um, my editor didn't. Oh. So, but the others, they've all been, they've all come up quite early. And I really loved that one, actually. But I can see that, it, you know, it might not fit on the cover and all of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it hasn't stopped other titles, has it? You know, let's be honest. It's the only one that there's been that sort of, workshopping thing mm. which is very unnerving naming things if you've got the name you feel a certain security about it and something without a name feels sort of headless right mm-hmm. do you feel the same Liz? you're nodding there. I'm the opposite I, ha- I uh, every single one of my titles arrived toward the end of the writing process uh, really and I've gotten into the bad habit I don't know if it's a bad habit or it's just what I do of taking my titles from other works um and uh, usually it'll be part of what becomes the epigraph of a book. Um, I just, I don't know. I like other people's <laughs> terms of <laughs> phrases better than my own, I guess. Um, but that's what I did with this one. I had a terrible title, which I, it was so bad that I won't even say it, um, right up until just prior to submission. 
um, of the manuscript, at which point I kind of like quarantined myself into a room for a whole workday and just read every text I could find that had anything to do with addiction. So mm. poems and prose mm. and songs and films and finally came upon that Tennyson quote in the nick of time. So, <laughs> so you did have a title, not that you're going to tell us, but yeah. there was a title on the manuscript, was there? Yeah. When you were, so it wasn't just untitled draft it was one, a title that I knew I couldn't like it was a bad title got it okay which is almost worth I should probably just have used untitled untitled <laughs> yeah. I really want to know what it was I do as well now <laughs> I'll tell you after <laughs> recording okay we're, we're going to hold it to that <laughs> but actually to, you know you saying I don't know if it's a bad thing or a bad habit or anything I know loads of um, art that has come from yeah. other titles and you know certainly in music yeah. if you look at, at music bands are named after songs of artists that they love and things. And I just think that's great because it helps you discover other other pieces of music, other books, other yeah. work, you know. Yeah, I agree. And then there's that sort of resonance that a thing has that you may have read the source and not taken it in, but there's something about that title that then it carries so much with it. So as you right. But also you we're talking about a novel published in 2020 now by you, Liz, and at the beginning of it is a Tennyson poem that many many people won't ever have read or know about and and it's 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 sort of give you know it's giving it a new contemporary audience isn't it whether people right. like it or not right right that's true and it also speaks to the idea that opioid addiction is not a new phenomenon not a new there thing. have been so many waves of it in various um moments in history yeah. Um, yeah yeah here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So it's time for the book off now where each of you gets to tell us about a book that you absolutely love and you think we should all read and the reasons why um and at the end of it i've got to i've got to choose which one i'm going to take home you each get three minutes on the clock but you don't have to use it if you want to if you want to just pitch the book in two minutes that's fine too but if and when you get to three minutes you'll either be honked out at your time or you will be wrung out as is tradition on this podcast so uh first we need to decide who's going to go first and who's going to go second so Sadie, I'll give you the option to choose first or second. 
I'll go first. She's going first. Uh, which means, Liz, you get to decide if you would like to be rung out or if you would prefer the honk. Um, I'll be rung, rung out. You will be rung. Okay. Uh, in which case, I will put three minutes on the clock now. And before we start, Sadie, tell us about, uh, just tell us the book that you're going to be talking about. It's a book called Flambards, which is the first in a series of three, um, and then much later a fourth, written by a novelist called Cam Payton. Fantastic. Well, the stream, it's on the clock now, so it's over to you to tell us about Flambards. Um, Cam Payton uh, was, is still alive. She's 90. She was born in 1929. I think that Flambards was one of her first novels that she wrote. Um, it came out around about 1969, I think. Um, it's set at the turn of the, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, it's a, a, one of those children's books that's really an adult book. You could read it at any time. Um, it's about a girl, Christina. It starts when she's 11. She's um, an orphan in the tradition of all great children's stories, um, but long enough ago that it, she's not tragic about it. And she's sent from her... Um, aunt in London to live in the country with her uncle and his two sons and it's an entirely new world for her it's a falling down house the uncle is has been was crippled in a hunting accident the one of the brothers uh, her cousins is very uh, sort of brutal fox hunting virtually illiterate and the house is falling down around them the other brother is this uh, sensitive hunting hating um, sort of a born liberal, very intellectual, dreams of flying aeroplanes. And Christina is a, a sort of perfect heroine. She's very practical and tough and full of action. But her dilemma is really the dilemma of the book. Which of these boys does she relate to? Is she going to fall in love with fox hunting and this old way of life? We're in about 1910. Um, or is she going to move into the future? Um, so it's romantic. It sounds like a romantic novel, but it's actually uh, it's about uh, the old world dying and modernity stepping in. It's set on the eve of the First World War, which is an adult reader, even as a lot of children would know that. Um, the house is a character in the book. It's falling down around their ears, the uncle dragging his legs around it, yelling drunkenly. There's something of the Bronteishness about it, but her writing is incredibly spare and... Um, like all really great writers, and I think Cairn Payton is a great writer, it's sort of genderless. Mm. Um, it's not a romantic book with a small R, but it has this huge passion for life. It's about the class system as was. It's about old England. It's about the brutal and the thoughtful. It's about so many things. Um, and really what's fascinating most about it is that this... What begins as a tyrannical old man with with this this bullish way of life, in by the end, you realise it's a fragile life because it's on its way out and everything is being swept away. So the people who and that's why it's a mature work and not a romantic work because it has this vision of the twentieth century. Um, that it <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! Very good. I that was fab. That. You were, you were really in the flow then as well. I didn't want to. I knew there was more coming. I you know I didn't I didn't want to no, have I'm to just, honk no, you I'm out. No, I'm just going to sit thinking what I left out. No, no I you think you did it. The title F L A Flambards. F L A M B A R D. It's the name of the house. Yes. Okay. And it's um yeah. yeah. 
fantastic. great book. And the, all three of them are fantastic. Then the fourth one la- written later on. Um, you know, you just it's a world you just want to be yeah. in. Those are the best books. Well, you can have you can have a well deserved rest now, Sadie, because uh, it's over to you, Liz. I'm going to put three minutes back on the clock just before we start. Which book are you going to pitch for us today? I'm going to talk about Life Among the Savages by Shirley Jackson. Fantastic. Okay, three minutes over to you. Okay, I'm going to talk about this book and this and why it's meaningful to me. And I'm also going to talk about why I think it's universally meaningful. And then if I have time at the end, I'm going to read a little bit of it just to get a feel for the language. Um, so this Shirley Jackson is best known, obviously, for works of in different genres. The Lottery is her most famous short story. Um, she wrote The Haunting of Hill House. We have always lived in the cath- castle. She's she's famous for writing kind of gothic-y horror genre stuff. And... Um, But she also had this other life as the mother of four young children. Um, She and her husband were both writers, although she was the more successful of the two and ended up becoming the breadwinner, but was still um, kind of expected um, because of the era in which she was writing and because her husband wasn't that nice a guy um, to act as the homemaker and the housewife as well. So she had partly to pay the bills. She began to publish these short essays in women's magazines, like Good Housekeeping, also some in in magazines like Harper's, I think, um, about life at home, um, which she was, some critics disparaged her for. I think Betty Friedan was very opposed to the idea that Shirley Jackson would, would write about her own domesticity in this way and thought she was setting women back. But when you actually read those collected essays, which became this novel, Life, uh, I'm sorry, this collection of essays, Life Among the Savages, you realize that she was extremely subversive. And to me, this book came along at a moment when I needed it the most because it's all about writing and parenting young children, which is what I am doing right now. So I have an eight-month-old and a three-year-old at home. And I am traveling on a book tour, and I'm teaching full-time at a university called Temple in Philadelphia. And I'm trying to hold down some semblance of a family life and trying to work on a screenplay and trying to work on a novel. And I mostly just feel like I'm going crazy at all times. And Shirley Jackson, through this book, provides a sense that it's possible to do that, but also more than just saying, like, you can do it all in a cavalier way. She also acknowledges the extreme injustice (laughs) of what I think women of her era were asked to do and what women are still being asked to do, the whole idea of a kind of second shift. I think it's universally appealing because she writes so, in her prose is so beautiful and funny, and anybody, man or woman, um, people with children or child-free people, can relate to the idea of somebody trying so hard to write and just being undermined constantly, trying to so hard to do any pursuit and being undermined constantly in that pursuit. Um, it looks like I might not have time to read, but you should all read it. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good as well. Lovely. I, how how much were you going to read? Because even though the time's up, I'd quite like to hear a bit of Shirley yeah, Jackson. I don't know about you, Sadie, but I think maybe a little snippet of Shirley would be good. Just a tiny bit. Um, the, the best line is the last one. Um, 
I'll read the first one instead because the last one doesn't make sense out of context. Our house is old and noisy and full. When we moved into it, we had two children and about 5,000 books. I expect that when we finally overflow and move out again, we will have perhaps 20 children and easily half a million books. (laughs) I'll stop there. It, It doesn't do it justice. The whole context of the piece ends... I cannot think of a preferable way of life except one without children and without books, going on soundlessly in an apartment hotel where they do the cleaning for you and send up your meals, and all you have to do is lie on a couch, and as I say, I cannot think of a preferable way of life, but then I have had to make a good many compromises, all told. So the whole thing is her acknowledging that, like, actually raising little kids is a thankless task, and saying that aloud in 1953 is sort of very subversive to me yeah and probably quite quite brave really mm-hmm. um i'll come back to talk about shirley that was a fab pitch thank you very much to both of you for those um km Payton is someone i don't know i'm afraid but uh, instantly at the moment you said it's it's a, a children's book that an adult can read you know it's a children's book that's an adult book I, I love children's books and children's literature and i love those books that you can read when you're younger and then still talk about them and return to them when you were an adult. So did you read it as a kid? I think I first read it, I was probably 11. And it's um, because it follows Christina's life from when she's 11 to her, her going, when she goes to the Hunt Ball at the end of the first right. book. <laughs> um, so it's it's really a, it's a coming of age book in lots of ways. It's romantic. It has, it has a bit of kissing, but it doesn't <laughs> feel like a teenage book but just because she's so good. And she was an incredibly prolific writer. She wrote mm. first um, under a different name, um, Boys Action Stories, um, I think in the 60s or even in the late 50s. Oh, right. Um, and then she took her name, but with the, the initials. With, yeah. It was her, her husband's name for the M. Otherwise, she just would have been Kay Payton. And she wrote... I mean, dozens of novels. And she won the Carnegie Medal, was shortlisted for a lot of times. She won the Guardian Book Prize. She was one of the first, because she wrote quite a lot of horse stories and quite a lot of sailing stories and quite adventure stories, um, often with male protagonists. Um, She she had a... um, She... She was one of those 70s children writers who was break, writing against the sort of nice girls and ponies pony books, you know, yeah. where everyone is middle class and everyone is well off. bit jolly hockey sticks. Very jolly hockey yeah. sticks, the whole sort of Enid Blyton thing and the Pullen Thompsons and all of those. She was, you know, a social realist. Yeah. She wrote about one of her pony books called Fly By Night is about a girl who's, you know, sort of middle, kind of lower middle class. Parents have never seen a pony. She just has this weird aberration and they live in this small terraced house in a modern sort of suburbs of some smallish city. Mm. And she does this crazy thing and gets, they've got no money and she has, she does a paper round and she has it in the garden and it's, there's nothing jolly hockey sticks about. Even that sounds kind of cozy. She's not cozy at all. She's quite a harsh writer. And to do that for children and older children and to for your prose to stand up yeah um down the decades she deserves a, a vast reputation and to be writing like you say f- for children in a way about you know that being are you going to go down this liberal path or are you are you into the hunt is that yes is that, exactly you know, is that how you and are, to be doing that at the end of the 60s um was quite yeah. subversive still i think yeah 
two sub two subversive yeah. writers here, uh, and then of course Shirley Jackson. Um, I mean, a collection of essays is can be a really wonderful thing, kind of. Anyway, it's much like short stories. You know, I love short stories. I love having a short story collection by the side of the bed just to dip into and things. Um, but it's interesting hearing about Shirley Jackson being definitely the breadwinner and the more popular writer and yet because of that time and era and the husband it's like but you'll still have to you still have to be the mum we'll yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. um so when you read it or when you came across it had you had your first child uh, do you remember I'm try- I think that I had yeah I think that I had there was a there's a um biography about Shirley Jackson by Ruth Franklin called a, a rather haunted life, and I read that first. So whenever that came out, you can check me on the publication date of that. Is when I found and then you life came among this. savages after that. Right. And then she has a second essay collection which I haven't read. That's sort of like the adolescent years of her children. Okay. <laughs> um, but there's an amazing anecdote that I didn't get to about when she arrives at the hospital to deliver her third child. The clerk doing the intake form says name, occupation. She says writer. And the clerk says, I'll just put down housewife. And that's mm-hmm. sort of like this, oh. that is the summary of the book. Like, oh, my God. That should be the tagline on the back. I'll yeah. just put we down love. Just put When down my first house, novel housewife. was published, yeah. I was described as a housewife. Ugh. Were you? And there was an article that says Sadie Jones, housewife's first novel. That's you know, insane. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but by the mere fact you've published a book, you're it was an author. Bizarre. So it was bizarre. Yeah. That's so when, well, how long ago was that? Derek? I was thirty-nine, and I'd been, you know, a tax-paying writer for right, right. fifteen years before then. <laughs> oh yeah. But I hadn't had anything that anyone could point to, so I did have children. So then I was, I guess, so that's it. You put, yeah. put in a box. Yeah. I mean, I I quite like the fact that you said it. Yes, if you've got, if you can be a, a male, female, male, have have kids, not have kids, it's it's still you're still going to get something from it mm-hmm. as well, which I think is, you know, um, it's quite a skill, actually, to be able to write yeah. like that. Uh, well, I've got to pick, I've got to pick one. Um, that's that's what happens here. And I have to say, I loved, I loved this sound of both of them. And Kay and Peyton, I, I just don't, I, I just, maybe I should have known her, I, I guess, because I didn't grow up reading them or something. I've missed, I've missed out here. But um, it sounds like she needs to be more read. I think, and great that she's she's still alive. She's ninety. She lived from the UK. She, yes, she yeah. is fantastic. Um, and then, as I said, the, the the collection of essays just I just love a great collection of things that you can dip into, and it sounds like it's a real. It's got that classic sort of Shirley Jackson humour about it as well. I today I'm in a I'm in a Shirley Jackson mood, so I'm going to take Shirley Jackson home with me. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, but I'm also going to go and check out Kay and Peyton, I think. Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I can stand it. There's four yeah. books in that series, is what you're yes, saying, there right? Are. In the Flambard series. So, yeah, I might have, to, might have to go and treat myself. Probably quite a nice present to give to a child now, maybe, as well. Yeah, absolutely. If, they, if you're saying they stand up. They really do. Yeah. And my, my, my stepdaughter was reading them, her new work, you know, in the 90s. Right, okay, so. okay. So there's lo- there's she's, loads to choose she's from. Still at it. it. There's loads yeah. to choose from. Fantastic. Um, and before I let you both go back out into the rain, obviously mm-hmm. we've got these two fabulous books uh, that are just out and just coming out in paperback. But uh, what else are you working on at the moment, Liz? You're over here for a little while, obviously. 
I'm working on the evolving screenplay for Long Bright River. For Long Bright um, River, okay. Yeah, primarily, and something else that I'm not ready to call a novel yet. So <laughs> okay, we'll yeah. untitled. Untitled, yeah, Very good. it will be for a long time. And what about you, Sadie? I'm about halfway through a novel. And I haven't got a title for it yet. Oh, oh so and this is a bit different me for you. Feel very nervous. I don't like it. And I've, I've started going through poems yeah. looking for because, and I, yeah. I'm, I'm just not sure. It makes me feel like I don't know what I'm doing. But then, what's news? <laughs> <laughs> hey, but maybe this will be this will be the change of, of of your style in that it'll the title will come at the end. This maybe, time. maybe, and that would be and okay. all will be well. Yeah, absolutely. It would just fit it in with what you've written. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, the Snakes by Sadie Jones is out now in hardback and in paperback from the 20th of February, published by Vintage and Long Bright River by Liz Moore is out now, published by Hutchinson. Thank you both so much for joining me for those fantastic re- recommendations. Thank Thanks you. For having Cheers. Us. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm.